Attention, everyone. Raise your hand if you've heard of any of the following terms. Sexual satisfaction, erectile dysfunction, low libido, sexual abuse, sexual fantasies. These topics are among the many that sex therapists can address. Thanks for listening to Through the Eyes of a Therapist. I'm Crystal Martinez-Acosta, licensed professional counselor. Today's episode is all about sex. Well, sex therapy. Our guest today is Jen Reeves, licensed marriage and family therapist, certified sex therapist. She'll be talking with us about what it's like to be a sex therapist. Listener discretion advised. So today we have Jennifer Reeves. I met Jennifer at the LPC supervisor training in Houston, Texas. And um, I believe that she is an MFT, which is a marriage and family therapist, a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, And in the previous couple of episodes, you heard some LMFTs and AMFTs talk about their experiences. And I'm super excited about this interview because... Jen is an MFT, but she's a very special kind and a rare kind, (laughs) at least in far west Texas. So you are a sex therapist, correct? Correct. I am a certified sex therapist. Awesome. So I'm going to go ahead and let Jen Reeves introduce herself and tell us a little more about what she does. So like Crystal said, I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, which is, if you've heard from other LMFTs, went to grad school. That's what my master's is in, is marriage and family therapy. And then going through, you know, the process of getting licensed and fully licensed, having to take the exam, supervision hours, etc. So then from there, to have a specialization in sex therapy, to be certified sex therapist, is extra courses and classes that you have to take that are related to sex therapy, um, so going through all of that, and then you have to do some, some even more supervision with a, with a sex therapist supervisor and, and to get certain hours there and work with a certain number of sex therapy direct client cases um, to get that certification. So my specific um, certification is just general sex therapy, but for me personally, what I end up seeing a lot of a lot, you know, a lot of people ask, well, what kind of clients would come to sex therapy? What what do you see in sex therapy? Um, and I'll tell you, the number one thing that I see are couples that come in with desire discrepancy. So this is where one person in the in the relationship wants to have sex more often um, than the other person, and so that's the yeah. number one issue. Uh, Interesting. The common question that follows up that is, oh, so like lots of guys that want to have sex more than their more than their female partners for heterosexual relationships, and I laugh and say, actually, the percentage breakdown is closer to like sixty five forty five. It's not like eighty twenty or some big discrepancy there. I have about forty five percent of my de- desire discrepancy clients are females that have higher uh, desire than their male partners. Um, so I see a lot of that. I work with a lot of what common people would call porn or sex addiction. Um, We do not call it that. Most people in the sex therapy field do not refer to it as addictions. And we can go into that if you have questions about that, Crystal. But um, I see a lot of clients that have what I would say out of control sexual behavior. Um, Oh, interesting. And then I also see, huh? I was like, oh, interesting. Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, And then a lot of erectile dysfunction or other um, 
vaginal and penile disorders such as vaginismus or um, dyspareunia, which is vaginal pain uh, disorders, um, is another or a lot of other things I see. And then, of course, I do see couples that don't have sexual problems. As a licensed marriage and family therapist, I I see couples that just have communication issues, just quote unquote. Um, and then I also work with the uh, gender and sexual diverse community. So I have um, several clients that are on the uh, lesbian or gay scale or um, trans clients. I do have trans clients that I work with or pansexual. It's, it's such a large scale. Um, so that is also another community that I work with. And then um, what we would call polyamorous and and the kink communities are also couples that I see. I, I don't shy away from any of those. I'm very life-affirming, if you will, or couple-affirming, whatever, whatever you want to do as long as it's not illegal, which is a totally different thing. I don't – so here's the other question. So a lot of people ask about offenders. I work with sexual trauma, but I am not certified to work with sexual offenders. That is a different certification – that you have to receive to to work with um, someone who has been gone through the courts and is is notif- is classified as an offender. I am not certified to work with those, so I cannot work with offenders. Interesting. So, I mean, mm-hmm. offenders, as in like legally, they have been named offenders, like sex offenders. Correct. Okay. Correct. If they come in and they say, um, "I've never been caught," or um, "I've never gone through the court system." Then legally, yes, I can I can work with them. I tend uh, to not to, depending on the severity of the offense. You know, if it's if it's um, pedophilia or rape or some other aspect, I I don't specialize in those things. So I do tend to refer those out to specialists in those areas. But if they have a little bit of a peeping tom aspect, um, where they've done not major offenses, like if they've gone into a woman's dressing room and, like, you know, recorded them doing that, I don't work with those either. But if they've, you know, looked at somebody in the car and and then kind of fondled themselves while they're driving, I would work with something like that. Does that make sense? It does make sense. So it's uh, kind of like the gravity of the situation plus... Correct. Yeah, Correct. like the offense. So something that's a little more, like voyeuristic that isn't very intrusive on the other party it sounds like right Um, right I would definitely work with that I have worked with a client who his issue was fratulism which is where they rub their genitalia on uh, another person as they're walking by them or you know if you're standing on a bus or a subway and a male has kind of brushed past you with their genitalia or brushed past and and brushed past your breasts, you know, for example. So those are little, those are definitely assaults, right? But I would still work with that, even though it's an assault. It's, while it can feel very imposing for the person that he has done that to, it is still, it's not over here where rape and completely assaulting a person to to a much larger extent that is severe, in gravity, if you will, you know, I hate to put it on a scale like that because I don't want it to feel like I'm downplaying that people doing that is okay. It's definitely not okay. It definitely is still an assault and illegal. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Wow. So I like my wheels are spinning like crazy right now. So I have so <laughs> many questions. Um, so 
I work with a lot of victims of crime. Um, I've had, you know, children and young adults and even some adults who have experienced um, sexual assault or rape. So I just wonder, like, I know that you said that you get a lot of desire discrepancy, but do you also see a lot of trauma? Like, is that something that you screen for? Like, I'm just curious about that. Absolutely. So, so I'll walk you through Well, I see individuals as well. I don't just see couples. So I want to make that clear. Um, but I'll give an example of a standard four session assessment that we do, um, with couples. So the initial session is the couple session and, you know, that's where we do some of the bonding and get to know them a little bit more. I I get their love story as a part, you know, of what's going on with them, what their issues are, what they're coming in to work on. So the first session, you see them together and the second session, you see them individually for one hour individual session. Sometimes it can be two individual sessions, depending on how much their history. But in that individual session, we go into family history, dating history, sexual history, um, and yeah, I would ask them, when was your, what was your first sexual experience like? Has there ever been any unwanted sexual experiences? Tell me about those. So I definitely screen for, for trauma and, you know, run the gamut of their past kind of thing. Yeah. It's important. And then their fourth session is back again as a couple. And that's where we talk about, like, this is what the treatment options will look like. And so we talk in that fourth session, if one of them does have trauma, that hasn't been um, appropriately addressed. We'll discuss seeing that. I'll discuss seeing that person individually every, you know, for a few sessions to process through that with doing couple sessions um, as as needed, depending on what the situation is and, and whatnot. Or even if it's not trauma, if there is something like my, my um, out of control sexual behavior uh, persons, I often see them individually, primarily with couple sessions every third or fourth session that I see them. Mm, okay, okay. Something along those lines. But yes, addressing for trauma is is a must. I'm also curious about, you know, just your process of becoming a sex therapist. Like, why? Not, like, judgmental, like, why? <laughs> but, you know, like, what made what you... Here? Yeah, like, what, what was it that made you want to um, do this? So... I have a very complicated background in a lot of ways. Um, to be quite frank, my my mother was molested and raped by her biological father. And I learned this at about the age of nine. And that created um, an interesting dynamic for me of being really curious about sex and interested about it. And initially when I went into, when I was younger, I I really wanted to work with sexual trauma. That was going to be my primary niche. Um, and because of my mother and and hearing her stories and, um, I will give my mom a lot of props. Like she was very open. You know, if my, when my friends were having sex, they would ask me, Jen, is this normal? Jen, what about this? And so I would go ask my mom, and she would tell me, because this was before the internet, and then I would go <laughs> tell them the answer. And then I also remember uh, maybe about 10th grade, I probably saw uh, a video of Dr. Ruth Westheimer for the first time. 
And um, seeing this tiny little old woman from Auschwitz talking about sex in such a frank and honest way was incredibly empowering for my young female teenage brain, if you will, and being able to see that and go, oh my gosh, like, I could do that, you know, and it just, it was a very empowering feeling, and all my friends asked me about sex anyway already, so why not, um, and then the other, the, the third thing that kind of, well, there's four things, I guess, the third thing that really led into it was I also started listening, I don't know if they had it out in West Texas, but a, a radio show called Loveline. It became a TV show on MTV later on. Um, but yes. it was a radio show on Loveline with Adam Carolla and Dr. Drew Pinsky. And, you know, people would call in and I remember hearing the stories and I would say, oh man, it sounds like he or she has been molested or, oh man, it sounds like he or she has um, erectile dysfunction or performance anxiety or whatever. And then of course, Dr. Drew Pinsky being the more knowledgeable one and Adam Carolla being the more crude one, if you will, um, I was right most of the time. And so I was like, oh, this is, you know, I just found psychology in itself really interesting and sex was just fascinating. The, the why people have sex, what drives a person to want to want to have sex, I always found fascinating. And so that was part of it. And then, like I said, still at this time, though, I was very focused on sexual trauma. I was also in Girl Scouts all through high school. And so the um, I mentored a lot of the younger girls and the, that the younger girls would come to me with their problems. And, you know, I would talk to them about their problems so that those four kind of big things in my life really helped shape me wanting to be a therapist first and foremost, and then later on, um, once I actually realized it's a real certification and a real thing, a sex therapist. So that that's kind of what my guiding force was. What we all have in common thus far from the interviews that I've gathered from different therapists is, you know, that we all have a very personal reason for why mm -hmm. we're in this field. And I think that it's so important for people to understand that. Um that yeah. this this is not just like sitting across from somebody and like listening to them without making any expressions. It's about yeah. like hearing very intimate details of somebody's life and having to answer some questions that, you know, yeah. sometimes we don't know about either because we're not, you know, specifically sex therapists or we have to right. check in with ourselves and be like, hmm, why do I feel weird answering this question? And then like having to process that, right? Like yeah. I can just imagine um, the things that you've heard, you know what I mean? And I don't mean that in yeah. a way where I'm like, oh my God, I'm so shocked. Like how horrible or like um, how risque or how unconventional, like you just kind of really have to throw that, I guess, um, I don't know, like type of measurement, like out the window at yeah, some point. Definitely. Um, yeah. What is that like for you to, to hear that intimate stuff and like even stuff that maybe is unconventional and how you react to it? Well, you know, so I guess to answer the first part of that question, to hear that intimate stuff, uh, intimate stuff, I, I feel honored that, um, they can share those things with me that I, that, that, you know, I often make, I, I, you know, I, this may sound like a point of pride, but that they feel comfortable enough to talk to me about those things, especially 
when if I've been seeing somebody, for example, for you know quite some time, and then they finally say, you know what, I've been holding back on you. Um, I haven't let you in, and here's a piece of my story that I've never told you, even though you asked me this question, I didn't answer it, kind of thing. And I, I just always feel very honored that they would trust me with that. Yeah, trust me to hold on, hold those things for them. Um, as far as the unconventional stuff, that's a really hard question to answer. I get that question so many and different from so many people in so many different ways. Like, you know, a lot of times people ask, what's the weirdest thing you've ever heard? Or what's the strangest thing that's come through your door? And I always look at them and go, I don't know. Because what I consider strange is something that you might not consider strange and what you consider strange. I, you know, I don't consider strange. And so I will tell you, there has not once been anything that's walked through my door that has been shocking to me or that I have gone, that's really weird, yo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It really really doesn't. And so when people ask me that question, I have to search in my brain. And I, like I said, I usually come up with, I don't know how to answer that. I can't answer your question because I think that what everybody comes in with is, conventional in some way shape form or fashion whether it's a fetish i've had people come in with fetishes um but a fetish is is normal you know most people have some sort of fetish they just don't realize it's a fetish or you know something people come in with some kind of kink that they really enjoy most people have (laughs) some kind of kink that they really enjoy they don't always feel comfortable sharing it because they think that it's weird um, so when they do share it with me and I normalize it and I say, um, you're, you're totally normal. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. Like, <laughs> Congratulations. That's, that's, you know, that's the biggest thing that I tell so many of my clients, whether they're couples or individuals is like, congratulations, you're pretty normal. And they're like, what? <laughs> really? I think I'm so unique. Mm, you know, you're, you're unique in your own way, but you know, you're, you're pretty human. Yeah. So maybe there, you know, there's a sense of shame for stuff that they don't really hear about or that is not circulated either in media or in their family culture or their ethnic culture, whatever it is. And they feel like because I haven't heard about this, it must be pathological. Like I'm not normal. Something's wrong with me. But actually, just because we don't hear about it doesn't mean it's bad. Right. I'll give I'll give a very common one. Like one of the most common I don't know that it's a fetish, but I'll use the word fetish is is one called pegging. Um, are you aware of what pegging is? I actually don't know what that is. Okay, so pegging is when a heterosexual male um, likes it when their female partner either uses a strap on or uses some other um, sex toy to anally penetrate them. And a lot of people come in and they think, am I gay? Does this mean that I'm gay? Like, I'm, I'm not attracted to men, but I really enjoy this. And it's one of the most common, like, pleasure points. I mean, the, the prostate gland is right there. When you massage it, it feels good. It's a, it's a type of G-spot for men, if you will. Um, so, of course, it feels good. So, I have to, you know, I normalize that one a lot. Like, oh, my gosh, you're... <laughs> wow, you get pleasure out of out of a specific area that has a lot of nerve endings and feels good being massaged, again, congratulations, you're normal. Like, yeah. But that is one, and then, you know, their female counterparts will often come in and be like, he likes it when I do this, and that just makes me feel weird, whatever. So that's, that is something that is incredibly common, but people put a lot of shame in because there's still a lot of shame in what we would call um, 
heterosexism, heteronormal, you know, normality where heterosexuals are still considered the, unfortunately in society, superior, if you will, unfortunately. Does yeah. That make, yeah. Does that make sense? They're yeah. not. But, right. But that's how society still views um, the LGBT community as being non-normal. Right. Yeah. And so there's a lot of shame wrapped up in anything that might be considered um, on the homosexual scale or bisexual scale. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny. I'm having like these flashbacks to one of my women's studies classes that I had in undergrad. And she would always make us, I can't remember the professor's name, but anyway, she would always make us um, like memorize certain words. And one of them Mm -hmm. was heterogeneity. And Mm -hmm. so it just makes me think of that because I'm like, it's so true. Like anything that is, quote unquote, unconventional or quote unquote, not normal, it must be bad. And then people equate that to either being gay or being whatever other type of community that is not the majority. Right. So it's like, wow. And it's interesting because I don't know. I mean, sex is so. Hello. Everybody does it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, where do you think you came from? You know what I mean? Like, hello. Um, So, yeah, like, I don't talk about it. Or, you know, in a lot of uh, religions and cultures is um, don't have sex till you're married. But then once you're married, have sex and feel good about it. And so I see a lot of people that come in and, you know, they grew up with sex as bad. And then they got married and they're told a totally different story. You're supposed to please your partner. You're supposed to want to have sex with your partner. But you've had 20 some odd years of the message of don't do it. It's bad. And now you're supposed to flip a switch and enjoy it. Right. And that that is where a lot of um, a lot of the discrepancy cases end up coming in is because of is because of the messages they received as a kid are indirectly are directly in conflict with what they are quote unquote supposed to do as a married person. There's a big struggle there where they're like, I feel so much shame, and I you know, I know I, they'll say, I know I'm supposed to enjoy this. It's you know, it's supposed to feel good. Everybody talks about how good it feels, but it doesn't feel good. It feels gross. It feels this. It feels that. And so yeah, so having to break down those old messages and those old walls and help them. Um, dive into their own sexuality, you know, their own um, erogenous aspects and, and eroticism can be can be tricky sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so stigmatized. Um, mm-hmm. it's, in some cultures, I'm thinking of my own culture, right? Like here in El Paso, there's a bunch of Mexican people. I'm, you know, I'm of Mexican descent myself, and. There's a lot of Catholicism here. Um, mm-hmm. Now, there are still some, you know, there's a lot of Christian churches popping up now. Um, but still, there's this huge value of religion and following, you know, some rules that belong there. And so, right. I and the reason, again, I was so excited to talk to you when I met you was because, like, I don't know any sex therapists here in El Paso. Like, I wonder if it's just that stigmatized. That, like, nobody would be able to open shop here and, like, survive. You know what I'm saying? Like, Oh, I bet you they could. I think they would make, if, if, if somebody became a certified sex therapist and opened shop there in El Paso and they were the only ones there that did that, like, they would make bank. Because 
it, there is such a need for it. Now, I would think that it would be a slow build because, you know, one of the biggest ways that therapists often build their clientele in private practice is word of mouth. People don't go and be like, oh, my sex therapist is amazing. You should go see her. <laughs> yeah. That is, you know, so we do have a tougher time as sex therapists building clientele by word of mouth because of that. But, you know, if they advertise themselves the right way, they would be getting people that are like sneaking in, <laughs> if you will, and and hiding around the corner as far as that go, you know, as far as that goes. Um, but I think that they would I think they would have a really good shot at being successful in places like that. Yeah. In, like places that don't have a high um, outlet for it. Right. Yeah. Because it's so not um, available or it's just the, the area doesn't just, we just don't have it. And if we do, I haven't heard about them, which is interesting. Right. Um you know, and I'm a therapist in the community. I work at a nonprofit. Like, I feel like I kind of know what's up, you know, here in El Paso yeah. and like who's around, but I've never heard of any sex therapist. So if any of them are listening right now, please reach out to me because <laughs> yeah. we need you. Yeah. Like, if, any, if anybody is listening or if anybody in El Paso or, or a more, um, I mean, El Paso isn't rural, but um, less like saturated <laughs> area, if you will, because Houston's pretty saturated, I'll be honest, as far as. As far as sex therapy goes, well, they even in Houston, I want to say there are ma- at most ten of us that are cert- that are certified. Um, so that's still not a very when you think of all of the therapists that are here in Houston, um, that's not a high a high percentage or a high number. So in places where there's you know even less therapists and and whatnot. There are programs, there's, you know, there's programs that you can get certified through. In fact, where I work, I work at Houston Relationship Therapy. My, um, the owner of Houston Houston Relationship Therapy also owns and operates and runs the Texas Sex Therapy Institute where she teaches um, uh, clinicians how to be sex therapists and certifies them to be sex therapists, which is where I got my certification from. And I actually... Uh, teach the occasional course or two as well as supervise um, future sex therapists as well. I just wonder, I wonder how it would work here in El Paso. But I mean, if you are an MFT in El Paso or, you know, you're going that route and you wanted to get and you don't have to be only an MFT, right? Can you be like an LPC? Yeah, an LPC. Um, I believe you can even be a social worker and get your certification. Now, there is, so here in Texas, we have the Texas Sex Therapy Institute. Nationally, we have the American Association of Certified um, Educators, uh, Sexologists, and Therapists, I believe is what sex, A-A-S-E-C-T. I did not go that route. Um, A lot of people choose to go that route just because it is nationally known. And, you know, the coursework between TSTI and ASECT are... In parallel, TSTI was was created to be able to meet the ASET um, requirements. I I didn't for financial reasons, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> yeah, ASECT sometimes that stuff is more like expensive. You have to pay annual dues and mm-hmm. to to maintain all of that, and that just you know, 
Therapists don't make a whole, whole lot of money. We, we don't, that's, that's not our primary reason for being therapists. Right, right. That's true. I went the way, the the route of just being locally certified, um, Texas certified, if you will, and being able to maintain things that way. So, you know. Yeah, that makes total sense. ASECT is a great program or it's a great, it's a great organization. It just was a little too expensive for me to maintain over the years, at least at this point. I may look into it a little bit more down the line, but for now. Yeah. So, you know, what I, what I also wonder about is, um, I guess if people are considering this path, um, and becoming a certified sex therapist. Well, first of all, not everybody should be practicing any type of sex therapy, right? So Correct. you can't just go and be like, oh, yeah, we can work on that issue because it's a sex issue. And, you know, I'm an LPC, but I can just study up on it or something. I mean, that's unethical. Well, some things, yes, some things, no. And, and I'll give an example. So, you know, you and I went to the uh, supervision training, right? Mm-hmm. And I had recently gone to uh, a sex therapy CEU. I can't remember exactly which one it was called. But one of the things that we talked about in that course, um, as a sex, the sex therapy course was, if you break down statistics of therapists, they said, um, the ones that are confident or that feel comfortable talking about sex don't necessarily have the right education. The ones that have the right education don't necessarily feel the most comfortable. The What the research has found is, interestingly, the ones that have the most uh, information and, and are comfortable are the ones who had supervisors, LMFTSs or LPCSs, that essentially kind of made their supervisees ask their couples about their sex life to become more comfortable asking their the couples. And, and I agree with that 100%. You know, I, I haven't quite finished putting in the application to become a supervisor for LMFTs yet. Um, but when I do have my supervisees, that is something that I am probably going to, to drive a little bit home on is I want you to be comfortable and knowledgeable when clients come in, especially couples, about their sex life. The number one thing that I, that comes through my door with couples and, and, and um, individuals that have seen previous therapists and why they have not picked me is because their, end of their previous therapists, if they brought up sex, would either say, yes, we can talk about that, and then never went back to it, or were not comfortable talking about it at all. Or some, you know, or just didn't seem knowledgeable. They would give them some, honestly, bad advice. (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, So, yeah, like, not everybody can talk to any of their clients about sex. You definitely have to have um, some knowledge there. You don't necessarily have to be certified to talk about some of the... um, like, like, like desire discrepancy. I think, I think most couples therapists, um, I don't want to say the word should, but I think should be able to handle something like that. Now with something that is a little bit more fetish or, um, a little bit more on the, on the scale of like polyamory or uh, kink or something along those lines or, um, or, or even LGBT issues. Um, 
yeah, I think that coming to somebody that is that has a specialization in it would definitely be more beneficial. But I see for some of the because almost every couple at some point in time or another will struggle with their sexual relationship. It, you know, like things wax and wane and they go up and down and, and that can cause strife or if there's strife in the relationship that can, um, you know, hinder the sexual side of the relationship. So I do think people that work with couples at some point you need to educate themselves at least to be able to work with the more standard sexual issues, if you will, like desire discrepancy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it sounds like for the field that you're in, that's something that um, is kind of not basic, but something that people should be able to handle. Like it's a standard. Um, yeah, I, I think so. But a lot of people don't. A lot of people, it, you know, we live, we still live in a society where there's billboards about sex all over the place. There's TV shows about sex all over the place, but shh, don't talk about it. And so even as therapists, you know, if if we grew up in a household where we didn't talk about sex and then we have our own shame around sex. How can we talk to other couples about it if we don't learn how to talk to other couples about it? So I I think, you know, don't come out of the gate talking about it if you can't talk about it, but I think educate yourself a little bit more if you're going to be working with couples and, and work on being more comfortable talking to um, clients about, about their sex life, asking them about their sex life. Yeah, I think, you know, and you hit a really important point that I think applies to any type of therapist with any issue is, you know, if you know that you're uncomfortable with a certain topic, be it sex or whatever other thing, um, trauma, natural disasters, I don't know, um, anxiety, depression, like anything, and you are not aware of those blind spots quite yet, or you don't have a certain level of comfort asking those questions, um, and you can't, um, I call it affect regulation, like you can't regulate your affect around that issue, uh, that's important. (laughs) And you can affect your clients, right? And so like you said, People come to you after seeing an individual therapist who maybe couldn't do that. Um, And it was clear that they were uncomfortable. So it sounds like maybe those therapists might need to go back and explore, go get supervision, consultation, maybe their own therapy, if they want to continue working with that population. Is what it sounds like. Yeah. Right. Well, and I I mean, there have been so many therapists that I have done unfortunately, and, and I don't think they did it maliciously or anything, but have done more damage in that shame aspect. You know, I think sex is one of the most vulnerable things a person can do. And it is one of the most vulnerable things people can talk about because you are quite literally naked. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's you true. are laid bare with, for your partner to see and to feel and, you know, when you are talking about sex, not that you are envisioning yourself having sex while you're talking about it necessarily, but you are once again naked when you are talking to them. And if your therapist looks at you like, oh, you're into that, uh, uh, you need to see some, like you need to see somebody else. I can't. I mean, you've just done so much damage just by not being able to to regulate your affect of like that's and telling them they're weird. <laughs> right. Right. And then they might not come see me because they think they're weird. 
Right. Instead of being able to look at them and say, you know what, that's a very common thing, or I don't work with that, but I know somebody who does, and being able to find somebody who is comfortable talking about that, but having that like, yeah, no, that's no big deal. I don't know what to do with that, but it's not a, you know, here, here's somebody else. And there's a big difference, but I've had definitely had people that have been like, they responded this way. And that's why it took me so long to even come see you is because I was so afraid of somebody else acting like re- reacting that way. Oh my gosh. And even just in general, like if that's the kind of reaction, cause I've had people tell me that before and I'm not a sex therapist, but just in general, as a therapist, People coming to me saying that they've gone to another therapist and that they were really judgmental or they were telling me what to do or whatever. Um, They were texting while we were in session, like (laughs) stupid things like that. And I'm like, what the hell? Like you're giving therapists a bad name because then like the person is going to need help eventually. And they're probably going to want to go to therapy. But because you left a sour taste, you know what I mean? Like in their mouth. Now that's another barrier for them to get treatment. Like, come on. (laughs) I'm all, anyway, I'm all venting, but, um, (laughs) no, but I do the same thing. Like I, I have, and I will, I will be perfectly honest in saying now there's an area where I struggle to control my affect when somebody tells me something, a different therapist has done. And I cannot stop myself from going, are you serious? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I am so sorry. You had that experience that, you know, like you can see it on my face that I am, I can be quite horrified that there are therapists out there that are, you know, it's not wholly inappropriate. You know, they're not having sex with their clients. It, I mean, obviously that happens, but like in that situation, unfortunately, yeah, me, like this is how they reacted. And I'm like, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, you're like, that's so I wrong. Struggle, I struggle there because of the same thing that you just said. Like, that person is giving therapy such a bad name. Like, oh my gosh, when we talk about mental health in this country and wanting, you know, so many of us clinicians, you know, we want better mental health. It, you know, that's a primary issue for us when we're looking at things politically, right? You know, but when you have therapists that are that are doing those kinds of things that aren't really being very helpful and in fact are being judgmental and whatnot, why would anybody want to put money towards mental health <laughs> if that's what they their experience of, of mental health has been? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I so. And I think it's really important to underscore the fact that, I mean, any type of therapy is kind of intimate, right? Like, it's vulnerable. Oh, for sure. Um, but I can imagine with sex therapy, the kinds of, like, stigma and shame that people have to get over – And that's like a whole other level of messing things up. Like, are you kidding me? (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. I I mean, it sounds like you have a huge responsibility and it sounds like you have to really create a lot of emotional safety with people. Yes. There's, you know, making sure that this remains a safe space. Um, I use a lot of humor in my sessions. In fact, like my the other clinicians around here, I'm I'm very well known in my office for I have a loud laugh. And <laughs> you, can hear, you can hear me laughing throughout the hallway, and then we'll get out, and there'll be you know my um, the clinicians will be like, goodness gracious, y'all were laughing so much. What did what was the issue? And Oh, sexual trauma. They were talking about, you know, this and they look at me and they're like, how do you find laughter in that? And I'm like, you kind of have to, in some ways, you have to be able to break down some of those walls and be able to not when we're not joking about the trauma, obviously, 
but you know, to be able to help them feel comfortable. There's also a lot of research going on right now about how much sharing a laugh with somebody makes you feel connected to that person. Like humor is vital in relationships, in my opinion. I think it's one of the number one building blocks that to lay a foundation in any relationship, whether it's a romantic foundation, a romantic relationship, friendship relationship, family relationship, therapeutic relationship. I think humor is, is it's vital in my personal and professional opinion. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Um, I was having a conversation a couple weeks ago with somebody at the office because a lot of us work with victims of crime and we're talking about how they've done like these studies about um, like cops and first responders and stuff like that and how they have this really dark sense of humor, but it's the way that they cope, right? And then we were talking about how therapists have the same levels of secondary trauma um, and vicarious trauma as first responders, right? Because we hear all this yeah. stuff all the time. So we were talking about how it would be impossible to survive in this environment without cracking the hell up sometimes because, right? and I'm like, right. I'm always, I'm known at my office. We're kind of like joking around or like, I'll rearrange like stuffed animals in weird positions. And like, I just like do little things to like lighten the mood because honestly, if everybody were serious all the time, um, based on, you know, everything that we hear all day, Oh God, like, None of us yeah. would ever want to go back. <laughs> so, right. yeah, I think absolutely it's that study is going to be really important. Um, mm -hmm. And, yeah, I I really try to incorporate humor as well in in treatment. Yeah. Um, well, yeah I mean, and, and if you even think about if I if I remember my research correctly, um, babies laughter is innate. I think they've done studies on blind babies, deaf babies, blind and deaf babies, and they all laugh. So where did they learn that from, you know, if, if, if they're, if they're laughing and really what they've kind of come out of these studies is that babies are incredibly manipulative. They're really cute, but they want you to bond with them. And that is one of the key ways that we bond with people is laughter. And so when babies are giggling, cause there's nothing more infectious than the sound of a baby's giggle. In my personal opinion, it's the cutest thing. Um, but it's, it's to get so you to bond is. with them. That's, that's the sole purpose. And then they learn what makes you laugh when you when you laugh back. And then they keep doing that. They remember that and keep doing those things that they know are making you laugh. It's really interesting. That's so cool. Me. It makes me think of that video where the I think it's a dad or something. And he's tearing. He's just ripping pieces of paper in front of the baby. <laughs> and the baby's like cracking the hell up. It's so funny. Like I cried <laughs> laughing when I saw it. I think I'm going to post it along with this episode. People are going to be like, what the hell? This is about sex right. therapy. <laughs> like, why is there yeah. a random video? Well, I, I, I think of the one where the little baby, the dad, it's, it's interesting that it's a dad as well. He's going to clip her nails and when he comes in to clip her nails she starts to pretend to cry so he backs off and starts cracking up laughing and then so she laughs so now she's learned if I pretend to cry you're, you're gonna laugh at me and so she keeps pretending to laugh every time he goes in to cut her or to pretending to cry every time he goes in to cut her nails because it makes him laugh so he, <laughs> she's now learned that's so cute when I do this I, I make him laugh and, and then I laugh and then we laugh together it's it, yeah it's really funny 
How cute. That's so cute. So, I mean, yeah. long story short, bottom line <laughs> is that humor can be a really good way to create yeah. emotional safety and yeah. it has to be even, appropriate. Oh, Crystal, even in the bedroom, like one of, oh my gosh, one of the number one things that I work on with clients all the time <laughs> is to how to use play and humor in the bedroom. When it comes to sex, so many people are so serious. They have these, like, I'm going to get off or I'm going to get her off or, you know, I'm, I want to get my partner off. And so they're trying their hardest to do those things. They have this goal of penetration and orgasm. Those are their those are their goals. And so they, they're working on those goals. And in doing so, they've lost the play. They've lost the fun of sex. And when you can make sex fun, when you can do things like, you know, pretend to orgasm like a Wookiee. I know that sounds really strange, but like, <laughs> and crack up in that moment. Yeah. It, it makes the, the uh, experience so much more pleasurable by having that. It's not pleasurable to just have the goal of sex be orgasm and penetration. So that is the number one thing that I work on. I Almost 100% of my clients is make your goals of your sexual experience about having fun and about um, pleasure and connection. Connection, sorry. There's having fun and connection. Don't make them about penetration. Don't make it about orgasm. So what if you had an orgasm? Did you connect and did you have fun? Make those your goals of, of sex. And it will, it will change your sexual experiences so much if you can reframe the goals of sex in your brain to go that way because sometimes at some point in time or another you are going to have a dysfunctional or incredibly dissatisfying experience even in happily married this is because this is what we study happily married highly satisfied couples about 10 percent of all of their shared sexual experiences are dysfunctional to highly dissatisfying to one or both partners so you're going to have those experiences and if you focus on those dysfunctional experiences of those dissatisfying experiences as such then it, it, it's a trickle-down effect. You know, you start to get, that's when the performance anxiety starts to set in. I talk a lot about male vulnerability and how oftentimes all it takes is one time for them to not be able to get an erection or one time for them to come really fast and now it's in their head and that's all they can think about, which of course then exacerbates the situation and that's when it becomes a disorder. It's not a disorder for when it happens once in a while. That's normal. <laughs> yeah. You know, like that's you're it's going to happen. And then when you get older and your prostate starts to you know, it starts to malfunction and you can no longer get erections in general or you have cancer or some other aspect, you have to be able to redefine your sex life. So start young. Start when you're in your 20s and 30s redefining the definition of sex to be about connection and fun and not about orgasm and penetration and your sex life will be will honestly just be so much better. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It, it, it's, it makes me think of how in my culture and I grew up Catholic as well, how sex is for procreation. That's it. Like right. you don't do it, like don't do it before you're married. And when you're married, it's for procreation. <laughs> That's all it's for. 
I'm like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Like in my therapist brain, I'm like, there's connection, there's intimacy, there's trust building. There's all kinds of stuff that goes into sex. It's not just for procreation. (laughs) Yeah. Sexual myths that lead to cognitive distortions that can then lead to like disorders. Right. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, my God. This is so interesting. (laughs) I'm like, my brain is like. This is why we don't consider it an addiction. Right. Um, Because as humans, we are pre-programmed. At least there, while there is a, there is about, I think 2% of the population are asexual, which means they, they really care less about sex for the most part. They still enjoy closeness. It's not like they don't want a relationship. They just don't either don't like sex or don't think about sex. They don't have the drive for it. But for the vast majority of humans, um, we have a pre-programmed drive to want to have sex. You can say that's because we're programmed to want to procreate or we're programmed to want to have pleasure. Either case, the drive is there um, to to want it at some point in time. Um, you know, women often experience the highest drives when we are ovulating, so that's where some of that comes into play. But that's where, when it comes into, when you think about addictions, when you become addicted to alcohol or you become addicted to cocaine or you become addicted to heroin or some other drug, you don't have a pre-programmed piece of your brain unless, you know, well, unless you're your mom was doing drugs with you in the womb, you don't have a pre-programmed part of your brain that wants that. But you do with sex. Um, you, that is something. And you do with wanting to have an intimate relationship with someone. You know, again, while there is a very small percentage of hermits out there who don't want relationships with people, the vast majority of persons are looking for connection. And in many ways, that's achieved through sex. We have chemicals that get released when we're having sex that bond us to people. Um, there's a there used to be a common joke on a lot of um, old night comedy sitcoms and whatnot that oh my gosh, after we had sex, I accidentally said I love you. I don't love them, but I said it because you have like chemicals running through your body that made those words pop out of your mouth <laughs> like you know <laughs> yeah it, makes sense it's there yeah so, yeah so that's why i don't we don't call them a sex addiction is because there is that and even porn addiction if you want that's always a fun one like um so people what about porn addiction you know you're not pre-programmed to want to watch porn no but again you are pre-programmed for sexual pleasure and in fact little boys are one of the very first self-soothing techniques that they learn, they actually learn in the womb, is to play with their penis. They are tugging on their penis in the womb. So there is a pre-programmed self-soothing technique that comes with playing with your genitalia. Little girls, I think if we could reach our clitorises a little bit easier, we probably would do the same thing as boys and play with it all the time as well. There's lots of nerve endings. There's lots of pleasure points in it. It feels good. It's self-soothing. That's interesting. There is that aspect where, no, the porn itself, watching porn itself is not pre-programmed, but self-soothing is. And usually what happens with watching porn, it is is in the vast majority of cases a self-soothing technique to deal with boredom, to deal with anxiety, to deal with other, other sexual issues that are going on. It's, it's often a symptomology, not, not the problem. 
if that makes sense. Right. Yes, that does make sense. I've heard that um, kind of like, uh, I guess, master masturbatory behavior. I don't know if that's how you say it. Masturbatory yeah. behavior can be helpful for people with anxiety and that's why they do it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yeah, it makes sense. I, I understand that, you know, this, this is innate. There are parents who are really worried about, you know, a child playing with their genitalia or like yeah. just different things that have to do with either uh, development or, you know, they're appropriate for their age, but they like freak the hell out because of the stigma yeah. attached to like touching your penis, you know? And it's like, right. Oh my God, like there's something wrong with him. He's going to become a pedophile. And I'm like, uh, no, he's three. Um, yeah. and he just discovered his penis. Like that's cool. All right. You know? And yeah. it, so like normalizing that for people is really important. I, I can imagine how much of a myth buster you have to be also and like know what you're talking about you know like learning all of the terms one one other thing that I wanted to ask you real quick is let's say somebody's listening and they're like hmm sex therapy interesting uh why would somebody want to come and seek therapy from you uh I know that in the beginning you talked about who you work with the type of people you usually see but I guess if client future potential clients are listening, what would you say to them um, about coming to sex therapy? Um, I would say come in, obviously. But <laughs> yeah, you know, I think offering a non-judgmental, incredibly open, life-affirming stance of there is there's nothing that you're going to say that's that I'm going to consider taboo, and that. Many, if not most, sex therapists would consider taboo. They would be, oh, okay. They're going to be able to accept you um, for who you are and how you are. There are some things that, um, you know, a lot of times, for example, um, I'll have somebody come in with a fetish and they want to stop the fetish. And I'll be quite honest in saying that I often don't work with them to stop it. I work with them to accept themselves, to accept that, hey, this is part of your erotic map. And that's okay. It's not, as long as it's consensual between you and your partner, it's not hurting anybody. It's healthy for you to explore that. You know, again, as long as it's not a a manipulative aspect or something that is harmful to somebody else, I want, I, I work more towards helping clients accept themselves, um, and accept, you know, their partners as well. If, if they, if their partners are having some issues and, or they're having issues accepting a fetish from their partner or something with their partner. So you're going to get an experience with somebody who is open and non-judgmental and, really wants you to work on I, I key in on sexual health a lot and making sure that you people are following the guidelines of sexual health and are within the guidelines of sexual health um, and being able to work with that and helping them find their best healthiest selves if that makes sense absolutely you know, I, I think that is vital and so seeing a sex therapist like I said if, if you're going to come in and there's that piece of you that is too scared to talk about fantasies with your partner um, because you're afraid they're going to reject you. Sometimes coming in and saying, like, I think this fantasy is strange, and having somebody else say, 
no, let's talk about that and help you accept yourself. So then you can talk to your partner about it and then help your partner, you know, be accepting can be, can be huge. I think the number one thing that couples don't talk about is their sex life. They, you know, when it comes to communication and the first step of having a healthy sex life is being able to communicate with your partner. And so I can also teach you that. I teach couples how to talk about sex with their partner in a safe and healthy way um, so that they can have a healthy sex life. <laughs> yeah, that is so cool. And I it sounds also because you have a strong background in family therapy um, and then your extra uh-huh. training in uh, sex therapy, your certification, you really could probably see anybody and then probably when you're screening for um, like maybe sexual health or trauma or um, their sexual experiences, like something will probably come up. Is that, is that usually what you find? Maybe they kind of stumbled in, but didn't have the intention of talking about their sex life. And then they end up doing that. Yeah. I'd say it's probably about 50, 50, you know, the name of the, the, place that I work at is Houston Relationship Therapy. And so most of the time we do get most of our clients are coming for relationship issues. Um, you know, you can read bios about me or whatnot on our, on our website. And I'll be honest in saying that it's still on our website refers as being, um, an addiction specialist, sex addiction specialist. We only use that terminology because that's how most laymen refer to it. They, they don't know that it's not called that. And so, you know, whatever purposes. So I just want to put that out there. But yeah, oftentimes we will have somebody come in as a couple and they're coming in for communication issues, right? I think that's probably the number one thing in general that couples come in. We're having a hard time seeing eye to eye. We're fighting all the time. And yeah, I often ask, I, or not often, I ask every single time, and how's your sex life? And sometimes they look at each other and then they look back at me and they're like, it's terrible. <laughs> okay, so we'll add that to the list of things that we're going to be working on in here if you want to if you want to work on that. And then sometimes people, yeah, they come in with, with non-sexual, everything. Our sex life is great. Everything else is, is terrible. And sometimes people definitely come in. I picked you because, you know, I read that you work with this sexual disorder, this sexual um, function or whatnot, you know. Mm-hmm. I picked you because you are a sex therapist and I've seen other clinicians and anytime sex gets brought up, they feel uncomfortable. So, and this is obviously something we need to talk about. So, you know, so I also do work with things like infertility and infidelity and both of those are, um, huge in the sex therapy world Infidelity, obvious, you know, for obvious reasons, infertility ha- can have a dramatic effect on a couple's sex life. So, Oh, you know, I can imagine. There's that aspect as well. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I've never run the numbers, but I would almost say it's probably 50-50 that people come in specifically because I want to see a sex therapist and the other 50% of my sex therapy clients end up becoming sex therapy clients because I've asked them about their sex life. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we've talked about a lot and also <laughs> like every single topic that we talked about could be its own episode, um, right. which is really cool. You should probably start a podcast. I remember you telling me <laughs> that you wanted to I do that. To. When I was younger, listening to Loveline, like I said, I used to say my dream job 
would be having my own like sex talk show on the radio. I didn't want to be on TV, but on the radio because I think that I am knowledgeable like Dr. Drew Pinsky and I can be crass and crude like Adam Carolla <laughs> and would have that aspect as well. You know, I called into them once and they answered me. Yeah. On the radio, yes. This is a long wow. time ago, like maybe 12 years ago. I called in and asked about like a friends with benefits kind of situation I was having at the time. And um, the call lasted like two minutes and they were like, yeah, no, don't ever do that. That doesn't work out. And then they like hung up and I'm like, really? Like, that's something <laughs> that's something my best friend has been telling me. And then she still she, I told her about it. And she's like, so you have to call a radio show to hear the same thing that I just told you. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> So I, I called in one. Right? Like, I can't tell you how many times I have been sitting with a couple and I will say something. Neither one of them brought it up. And the whoever it is will look over at their partner with a, mm-hmm, I told you so. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm guessing this is not news. And they're like, no. But it, for whatever reason, when it comes from a quote-unquote expert or professional or whatever, it's like, the most light, like, you know, because oftentimes their partner will respond like, oh, my God, that's amazing. That's so profound. And they're like, I have been telling you this for years. How is this profound? It should not be profound. But it is because it comes from a professional. <laughs> <laughs> that's super yeah. funny. Oh, man, that's great. Well, um, would you like to tell us a little bit more about your practice or um, where people can get into contact with you? Sure. Um, you can go to www.houstonrelationshiptherapy.com um, and you can find me under, I think it's under our staff or team is the button that you would click. Um, I do have a Psychology Today ad as well that's under my name, Jennifer Reeves, um, would be the place where you can email me at jennifer at houstonrelationshiptherapy.com as well and I can go from there thank you so much for being on the podcast thank you so much for for having me like i always a good time to get the word out there about sex therapy because i don't think that it's something that people you know i remember when i first graduated from undergrad i didn't realize it was a real thing you know to be to be quite honest it wasn't yeah. until later on that it was like oh like you can actually get a certification and specialize in sex therapy. That's a thing. So I don't think a lot of people even today realize that, yeah, it's, it's a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> sex it, therapists exist. Yeah, sex therapists exist, and it's, it's important. <laughs> yeah. So thank you. Thank you. Wasn't that just so freaking interesting? That was, like, one of my favorite interviews. Thank you so much, Jen. I really appreciate your time, energy, and contribution to this podcast and to the field. For more information about sex therapy and about Jen Reeves, you can visit my website, www.throughtheeyesofatherapist.org. Remember that you can become a patron for as little as $1 a month. So visit patron.podbean.com slash therapist eyes. I'm Crystal Martinez Acosta. Thanks for listening to Through the Eyes of a Therapist.